as a youth pastor across town in 87, and we left to go to Ohio to pastor a church that met in a building that was over 100 years old. And when we were meeting in that building, we had a baptismal service, and I asked a fella in the church if he would go and prepare the baptistry and make sure that it was uh, in good working order and safe. And he came back and he told me that it was not. He said, uh, the foundation of the church has actually been compromised. And he took me to the basement and he showed me that over, um, that, the, that the foundation of the church was uh, in danger of failing and that, that eventually it would ruin the whole structure of the building. And I said, what caused it? And he said, you see this little pencil of water that falls right here? He says, this, over the years, that little pencil of water has worked away on this uh, corner of the foundation. And if it had continued a, a bit longer, the entire foundation of the church would have been compromised. He was able to fix it. And I checked on Google Maps, and the building is still there. And standing just uh, beautiful as it ever was. And strong and, and firm. And today, and we move from 1 Peter to 2 Peter, what we're going to see is that 1 Peter was Peter's letter to people that addressed how to be faithful when you face suffering. And now the second Peter letter, the shorter of the two, the theme there would be how to be faithful when you face false doctrine or uh, erosion of the very foundation of the church or of our families or of our lives or what we believe. And Peter warned in his last letter, just before he, according to history, Christian tradition, he was crucified upside down. Before Peter laid down his life for Jesus, he wrote this brief letter in which he said, withstand wrong doctrine, error, false doctrine. And that's going to be the theme of Second Peter. You're going to see that. And so in a sense, when we study Second Peter and when we have messages through Second Peter, what we're really doing is we are checking the foundation of the church and we're checking the foundation of our families and we're checking the foundation of our lives to see to it that what we have will stand and will endure and when difficulty comes. And so First Peter is about finishing faithful in an atmosphere of suffering and Second Peter is about finishing faithful in an atmosphere, uh, atmosphere of apostasy. And if you're paying attention, you'll notice that even as we mentioned today, that in this time, some people are moving to God. The sad part is that you don't have to look very far to see that in this time, many people are moving away from God. And what is that when someone moves away from God? How do we understand that? What does the Bible teach about that? This is something that we'll study in 2 Peter. Not today, but we'll definitely study this in 2 Peter. What are we to think of when someone that you love moves away from God? And how do we handle that? And how should we see that? How do we understand it? So 2 Peter is incredibly relevant for us to understand how to live. 1 Peter, in an atmosphere of suffering. 2 Peter, in an atmosphere of unfaithfulness or infidelity or unbelief or apostasy. And 1 Peter, in a sense, it was like withstanding the suffering that comes from the outside. But 2 Peter, we're going to see as we study, especially in the second chapter that the error didn't stay outside the church. The error actually was inside the church. So it was danger from outside in 1 Peter, and it's danger from within in 2 Peter. This is a real thing. This chunk of text, we're dealing with 1 through maybe 9 or maybe 1 through 11, depending on 
my mood today. But this chunk of text, this section or this portion, is a Latin word that comes from the Greek called pericope. I think about it every week because it's like the pericope means the part you traced and cut out. And the, fr- and, the, and the word me is, the idea of the word is, this is the chunk that we're dealing with, the chunk of thought that we're dealing with, the bit of text that we're dealing with. And this is kind of what we do in our church a lot. Uh, we'll have topical messages from time to time, but mostly what we do is we just take the Bible and we deal with it a bit at a time, a chunk at a time. We just explain what it says. Is, is it not shocking to you how, when we do that with the Bible, we see that the Bible speaks directly to the the most profound needs that we have all the time. It's amazing. It speaks directly to our most profound. I literally had people. I had a man in a former church come up to me and say, when did you talk to my wife? And I'm like, I don't know your wife. Honest, I don't know her. I couldn't tell you her name. He goes, that's not funny. When did you talk to my wife? I was watching Jeff Mannion, pastor of the Ada Bible Church, speaking one day. And my son, you probably know I've mentioned, he's on staff at that church. And, I, and he preached, and I thought, wow, Kyle, my son, had to tell him my story. I called Kyle, I go, when did you tell Jeff about me? Literally said that. He goes, I never told him about you, that circumstance that I was talking about. Because he was preaching the Bible, it felt like he knew me. Because the Bible is God's word, and it was intended to be preached down to the ages to people. And the ancient text of the Bible addresses the immediate needs of our life. How sweet is that? And so what's, what we have here in this particular text today is just one of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible. It's truth like so much of Scripture. It has a poetic beauty to it. And one student of Scripture said it this way, and I couldn't agree more. He said, this is a breathtaking passage, unequal in the New Testament. I thought, that's true. It's rare that I take something out of a commentary because it's poetic beauty. In this case, I agreed. This is a breathtaking passage, unequaled in the New Testament. This jewel of the passage is so beautiful to meditate on it that during my study of this, it moved me to tears over and over again. I wanted to pillow my head on this text. I wanted to wrap my soul around this truth. I wanted to experience every phrase of this in my own life. And so let's look again at the first section of this, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to deal with this text today in, in three chunks of the chunk in three chunks, okay? So, and I'll give you a key word for each one and then a, a key truth. And so uh, the first uh, chunk of this is 1 through 4, and the key word is promise. The key word I'm going to use is promise. Now, he's calling himself Simeon Peter, which is you, would, you don't normally call him Simeon Peter, do you? Notice the EFE, the NIV, I think, says Simeon, doesn't it? It doesn't say Simon. It actually says Simeon, and we, we tend to read over it. Well, what's interesting is this probably is not insignificant, but that the Simeon would be a, a like if you're Jem, you're also... Wow, folks, I expected you to be a little quicker than that today. Is it smelling the chili making you slow? <laughs> if you're Jem, you're also... James or Jimmy, yeah, you could be Jimmy, you could be James, you could be Jim, it's the same guy. So it is, but however, in this case, the Simeon would be especially fall sweetly on the ears of Jewish people. In Palestine, it's interesting because was he writing to Jewish people? No. But Peter, remember what he was doing in a literary way in First Peter, he was treating them like literary Jews. Get it? In other words, you're, you're exiles. 
You're God's exiles, like, you know, the people that were exiles in Babylon. And at the end of 1 Peter, what does Peter call the people? He called the people in the church around him. He said the people, the church in, he's in Rome, but he calls it the church in, anybody know? Babylon. Were they in Babylon? Don't think so. They were in kind of spiritual Babylon. They were in Rome. So he's using Jewish terms with these primarily Gentile people as a way of endearing them, like, you're fully included in the Jewishness that we so are so proud of, that Jewish people are so proud of. Anyway, it's a small thing, but that's why it says Simeon, Peter, a servant, he calls himself, though he was an, an apostle of Jesus Christ, having seen the risen Christ and received the commission from him, to those who have obtained a, a faith of equal standing with ours. He's an apostle of God, having seen the risen Christ, having received a commission from the risen Christ, and he says to the rank and file Christian, your faith is just like mine. Love that. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Peter uses his full name, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, always has been, always will be. He's our Savior. He's anointed. He's the Savior. Jesus means uh, braveheart, conquering uh, military deliverer. That's what it means. Joshua of the Old Testament, Jesus of the New Testament, same word. So Peter's saying this. He's saying how wonderful Jesus is, and he's opening his letter with, you know, we have Jesus in common. He's God. He is our Savior. He is our anointed one. He's Messiah. He's calling him all that. And he says to everything for you, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord, Jesus our Lord. How sweet is that beautiful opening. And it even gets better. Now listen to this. Just listen to this as I read it again. The next two verses are some of the most shocking, beautiful, amazing promises in the Bible. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God in his power has given us everything for life, that we need for life and everything that we need for godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look at verse 2. In the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He causes you to know him. He awakens faith in you. He grants you eternal life. You didn't turn over new leaf, decide to follow him. He granted you eternal life as a miracle of God. This through the knowledge of Jesus, through the enlightenment, till we saw who Jesus is. And again, he says, his divine powers granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Gave us a full view of how beautiful he is and who he is. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. It's shocking. So I want you to be, you can be like God, partakers that you can have. There are communicable attributes of God. You can have love like God has love. You own us fully and perfectly, but you can love. God loves in you as a communicable attribute. You can, and, and there's going to be a list of eight things, a representative sample of beautiful qualities. They're going to come later, but you, he says, precious and great promises so that through them you can become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through sinful desire. Now, without commentary, let me just read that again slow so it falls on your heart. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us precious and great promises so that through them you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world through sinful desire or through lust. You can go ahead and say wow right now if you want to. Wow. 
So the key word to, to me here uh, in this text is promise. Through his, you know, what is it, another version, I think I'm used to the new King James, or exceeding great and precious promises is what it says. Maybe it says that in the kingdom, I don't know. Exceeding great, does it say that if you have that? Promises, these great promises from God are given to us. And by those promises, we can be partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world that feeds our base desires. This is amazing. There's a, there's a danger of, of, of wrong doctrine all around us, wrong thinking. But we have the, and, there's, and there are the allurements, you know, of the world, the, the lust of the flesh that pull us into the corruption, that means rottenness of the world. But we can escape those. I have a friend, uh, a mentor, a, a storytelling mentor, preaching mentor named Tommy Oaks from, from Tennessee. He's an amazing guy. You, you listen to him speak, and you might not even think of him as educated, but the man is brilliant. And I heard him preach a message he called, the message was called Getting Old and Being Beautiful. And in the message, he tells the story about a dear old man that got better and better and better. The older he got, the sweeter he got. And the more he grew, and the more you wanted to be around him, and then he talked about some people get old, you know, and they, they kind of get mean and they kind of get worse. They don't get better. They don't get more beautiful. They get, they get, they get worse. It used to be an old commercial. You're not getting older. You're getting better. Not true, but a, but a great commercial. You know, you're not getting older. You're getting better. This is where Peter is headed to saying you really can grow and grow and grow and get better and better and better. And this is based on the promises of God. So the key word is promise. And my truth that I want you to get is three points in my message because I'm a preacher. One, you can be like Jesus. You can be godly if the promises of God drive your life. These notes are online too on BethelJackson.org if you want them. But the, if the promises of God drive your life, you can be like Jesus in terms of these qualities. If the promises of God drive your life, there, you've, you heard of the purpose-driven life, anybody? The purpose, a good book. Can I tell you a little story? Guy, good pastor named Rick Warren wrote The Purpose-Driven Life, and the book, he didn't expect it to sell. It sold so well, it actually outsold the Bible one time, one year. It was such a great bestseller around the world. He literally said, with the money from the book, my wife and I could have bought an island and hired people to take care of us for the rest of our lives. True story. <laughs> I might have been tempted to do that. Island pure fat. Anyway, he didn't do that. You know what he did? He went back to his church with the money from the book, and he paid off his salary for 40 years. He paid the church back. Now, that, don't expect this to happen. My books sell, but not that well. Uh, he paid the church back his 40 years of his salary for the purpose-driven life. Just a little aside, this sermon is called The Promise-Driven Life, and we don't have high expectations for it other than being a blessing to you. But what if you live a promise-driven life? What if your life is driven by you? Your life is going to be driven by promises. Either the promises you get from the world or the promises you get from the Word. And the promises that you get from the Word, you, you have all things that pertain to life and godliness, according to this passage. And the promises that you get from the Word can actually develop in you the very character and nature of God in actual, measurable, observable qualities of life that are listed here. That's amazing. It really is. That the Bible says this is just amazing to me. So you have all that you need for life and godliness, verse 3. 
You're partakers of the divine nature. Like right now, what do you need for life and godliness? What are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with? What do you need to change? What grieves you? What do you need to confess? What makes you sad? What aspirations do you have? If they're noble and good and right and godly, they're possible through the promises of God if you live a promise-driven life. You'll be a partaker of the divine nature in the sense that qualities of Christ-likeness can be yours. The scriptures teach that consistently. And this is through the great and precious promises of God. The older you get, the more you will see that when God promises something and you claim it and you live it and you experience it, it's precious to you. It's a tired old story, but allow me to repeat. The story of the old lady that had a Bible and all over the Bible, when they were looking at it, it said TP, TP, TP. And so they said to her, what is the TP in your Bible? She says, those are promises that are tried and proven in my life, TP. You, you know, and you can relate to that if you walk with the Lord for a while, you think God won't do that. Yes, he will. God will do everything he promised. If your life is promise-driven, you can be like Jesus. And then it says this, and before we move on to the next chunk, you got to see, it says this is how we were delivered from the corruption, the rottenness of the world that's driven by our own sinful desires. Sometimes the Bible uses the word lust. Technically, lust isn't a word for something bad. It's just a word for a really strong desire. But it's often used in a context that's bad. In this case, the corruption that is in the world through these fleshly desires that are bad. So now here's what we have. You have promises that the world makes, promises that come from somewhere else but God, and you can build your life on those or you can let those drive your life, which is lies, or promises from God which can drive your life. My wife sometimes says funny things. I bought a new car, and I was, it's an off-road vehicle. It's not going to be an off-road vehicle, but it's an off-road vehicle. I'm driving along, and I hit the rumble strip, and she says, it's really good you bought an off-road vehicle because you drive off the road all the time. <laughs> I'm like, sorry, I was looking at my phone. Um, just kidding. Um, another, another time, I hear her saying to the kids who won't take medicine, if you die, don't come and complain to me, which I thought was kind of funny. But what was really funny was the other night, you know, she wants, she likes to watch the network news. And I'm like, they're lying to you. I say that every night. They are lying to you. Network news is a product of, you know, the, the news, all the news. It's, a, it's an entertainment product. I hate to burst your bubble in case you believe that stuff. It's an entertainment product. They're lying to you. I say to Lois every night, she says, oh, it's time for the news. I'm like, they're lying to you. I say it every night. And she goes, the other night she said, I thought it was so funny. She sits down in front of the news, turns on, she goes, I know they're lying. I just want to know what lies they're telling right now. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Like, if you're going to like, figure out the lies they're telling, because they're lying to you. I'm not picking on the news. They're lying in lots of places. Anything that, that contrary to God's word is a lie, and you can't build your life on it, you can't let that drive your life, or you end in rottenness, corruption, despair, guilt, sadness, remorse, grief, judgment. But if you drive, if you, your life is driven by the things that God has promised, it's the opposite. And you escape the corruption of the world. Is this a great passage? It's an amazing, amazing passage of Scripture. So what are you going to believe? And who are you going to follow? And how are you going to see your world? What promises will drive your life? What will you believe and build your life on? Truth or lies? One of the most important things about a person is what promises that they hear and believe. What promise will they build their life on? What promise will drive their life? That's the first chunk there. And it's, 
It's amazing, isn't it? You have to admit, what a wonderful passage that is. Go back to that over and over again and claim it for your life. Dads, claim that for your family. Bethel elders, let's claim this. Bethel deacons and elders and leaders, men and women, let's claim this for this church. This church will be a church that believes the Bible and obeys the Bible and sees what God does, builds everything we do. You're going to get married soon. Get a Bible and say, this is what we'll follow. God will bless a marriage that is driven by the promises of God. When you stray from the promises of God, there's going to be sadness that comes. I know some of you are in hard situations and you think, I'm tempted to believe that this won't work for me. Don't be tempted to believe. That'd be something else. That'd be a lie, wouldn't it? You believe what God says and whatever circumstance you're in, that you will build your life and let your life be driven by the promises of God. So the key word there is promise and the truth is you can be like Jesus if your life is driven by the promises of God. Now, the next question would be kind of like, well, what would that look like then? What would that, I mean, I, I always want to know, good pastor, I hear you saying that. It's kind of up, it's kind of ethereal. It's kind of theoretical. It's kind of abstract. What would that actually look like? How would I actually do that? How do I do that in my life, like Monday? How do I do that on Monday morning? How do I do that when my wife isn't happy with me? How do I do that when I have failed? How do I do that when I sinned again and I'm so disappointed in myself? I'm off the wagon or whatever. How does it, how would it, what would it look like? Well, the next section, the next two verses, uh, three verses, five, six, and seven, are a concrete and beautiful picture of what it looks like. And I'll tell you before we read it, what it looks like is progress, not an unattainable goal out, but it looks like incremental progress is what it looks like. Somebody said it this way, and I, it was very helpful. God is not as concerned about where you are right now as he is in the direction that you're moving. And I think that's what Peter is going to say in this. He says, get on, the, get on the path and get moving and move from one quality to another and exert effort. It doesn't say it directly in this text, but the the teaching of the New Testament is you'll never be alone in that because the Spirit will inspire it and the Spirit will empower it. But you, you don't, you don't exert personal effort to get saved. You believe. But to, but to grow in the Lord and to grow in faith, you try hard. You actually try not to lust. You try not to swear. You try not to steal. You try not to be selfish with your family members. You, you exert effort. It's going to say that in the text. The Spirit is going to inspire that and empower it. But the key word here is progress. In this section, verses 5 through 7, the key word, we have promise in 1 through 4. We have progress in 5 through 7. And the truth is, the promises of God drive your life. It's not where you are now. It's the direction you're going that matters most. And the best way to understand the drift and danger of continual falling away is a continual progression. It's always keep growing. It's the Lowe's thing, right? What do they say at Lowe's? They say, keep bringing your, me your money. Watch Chip and Joanna and then bring me your money. Go around, look at young couples' wives are leading their husbands around by the nose. I'm sorry, the wives are inspiring their husbands to build things in their house because they watch Chip and Joanna. You don't get that. Anyway, but their motto is, oh what? Never? Lowe's motto, you, go, you don't know? Never? Stop? Improving. Was that Home Depot? It's Lowe's. Never stop improving. Never stop improving. Well, I don't know about that, but I do know that's what Peter is saying. The way to push back against the downward tug of the world 
into the sewer, <laughs> into, the, into the sewer, the corruption of a lust-driven life is to never stop improving. Always be adding one virtue to another, and then it lists. Now, now we've got a little thing going here. Pastor Leo and I, Pastor Leo preached through, he did a series a number of years ago in this church on, on the eight qualities that are in this verses five through seven. And while I was studying, I thought, I'm not going to, you know, be very thorough with each of the qualities. I'm going to give the general idea here. And then yesterday as we were praying, he was mentioning how he's planning, he was planning to write that. And I said, well, would you make it available to people? And he will. So what's going to happen is we're actually going to have a printed version of the entire series that he's working on. He's going to give it to us. And so if you're dissatisfied with the detail that you get today in verses five through seven, you can pick up a whole like book-like or, you know, small book-like link thing that'll be available in a few weeks from uh, Pastor Leo. But the key word is progress. And the idea is when the promises of God drive your life, it's not where you are now, but it's the direction of your, where you're heading that matters the most. In other words, you want to keep improving. Now, this is in the Bible. Let me, get, let, let me prove that this is a major theme. The fact that progress is the idea is a theme in the New Testament and let me show this to you in three places so that you know I didn't make it up. First place would be in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where I often quote, and I'll quote it to you, we all with open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one level of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If you think you've heard that before, it's because it's my favorite Bible verse. I quote it all the time. But what is it saying is that, there, that the way spiritual growth looks, the way you're delivered from the corruption of the world is progressive. Isn't that cool? That a little at a time. So you're saved in an instant, in a, in a moment, but you grow slow and steady, slow and sure. Over time, you add your faith, virtue, and so forth. Now, this is true. You see it in what they call the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8, 28, 29, 30. And you see, you, you, you see that. Matter of fact, uh, You'll need to take time, or I won't finish today what I want to finish. So take your time sometime this afternoon before the Super Bowl starts and read Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption from Romans 8, 28 and following. And you'll see there's a progression there that God expects us. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not like instantaneous, you're perfect now. This is, Chad, this is encouraging, isn't it, right? It's like you got time to work on stuff. You're a new Christian, and you don't have to get perfect overnight. You don't want me to point you out publicly. We already made you a public example, Chad. Now it's like you're going you're gonna to get better and better all the time. And you're going to keep growing, and, and you're going to be a better man next year than you are this year. And you're going to be a better husband and a better dad and a better Christian next year than you are this year. And you're going to be one of those sweet old guys a long time from now, standing in the back of the church, handing out mints, and we'll make you an elder. Won't that be fun? So there you are. Keep coming back and enjoy the chili. And that's how it works. You get, then you're an old guy in the back of the church, and people go, I know a Christian man. He's in my church. You don't want to be that old guy that goes, like, stay away from him. He's a little sketchy. He's scary, dude. Don't go near him. I want to be that guy. That's what Tommy Oak said. He goes, my friend I was telling you about when he talked about getting old and being beautiful, he said, I'm not afraid of losing all my hair. He has lost all of his hair. He said, I'm not afraid of losing all my hair. He goes, I'm not afraid of that at all. He says, I'm not afraid of my 401k going upside down. I don't care about that. I'm not afraid that I'm going to go out in the parking lot at Walmart and I won't be able to find my car when I'm old. He said, what I'm afraid of is I'm going to be an old man. I'm not going to be more beautiful. But I've never forgotten that. And the Bible promises you can keep growing 
How sweet is that? You can add one quality to another. And now you see it here. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith that you have, you believe, with virtue, goodness. And virtue with knowledge. Knowledge isn't the be-all and the end-all. Oh, I know everything. Well, some, add some virtue to that, some knowledge, some faith, some virtue, knowledge. With knowledge, self-control. And self-control adds steadfastness, the quality of steadfastness. And to the quality of steadfastness, godliness. These are all imperatives, but they are implied promises. You get it? It's imperative is a command, but it's implied promise. God says, I want you to do this. It means that must be, and I can do that. If God says to me, I want you to be godly, like, are you telling me I can be godly? Can Pierpont can be godly? Can be, are you kidding? That's wonderful. I didn't know it. And then it's through building, it's be, being, having a promise-driven life. And then, and then it says, um, add to godliness brotherly affection. That means let somebody else get the brisket chili before you here in a couple of minutes when I stop talking. And to brotherly affection, the pinnacle of godly virtues is love. And if you want to cut away all the extra, just say, so you're telling me, God, if I, if my life is, if I trust what you told me and build my life on your promises, then I can be genuinely loving man, woman? Yes. Okay, I'm encouraged, Lord. Thank you. There's a key word. Then, then what about this? And this is the thing that hangs over my head. And this is what brought me to tears yesterday as I was just drilling down on this in my study in my corner of my room. And I just thought, oh, it just... My thinking is, yeah, yeah, I know. I know what it feels like to succeed spiritually. I've done it in different areas of my life. I've had victories. Have you? Long, really profound victories. I've, I've given testimony. I've stood before thousands of people, literally thousands of people, and told God's deliverance in my life. <laughs> literally thousands of people. You know, be really raw. Like, I remember talking about a particular area of my life where the Lord just gave me a wonderful breakthrough, and, I, and I, there were 600 men in a group, and I, I had to speak to these 600 men and tell them that, and they, they put on a cassette, and a kid came to me later, 18-year-old kid, and he said, I got this cassette. Were you telling about that? And it's the same problem I have, and me and my friends have been listening to that cassette, and God delivered all of us. I'm like, that's awesome. Then a number of, a couple of years later, a guy up in Vassar called me, and he goes, I heard that cassette, and I want you to come and speak to our men. And you know what occurred to me? Oh. I didn't tell him about that. I have failed since I gave that talk. And I had that inner dialogue, should I not go talk about it? And, I, and the God said, go talk, just don't lie to him. So I went up and I said, guys, I know the thrill of victory. I know the agony of defeat. Let's talk about it. So when I got to this last section, it touched my heart so deeply when I thought, God knows you're going to fail again. God knows no victory is going to be final until Jesus comes back. God knows you're still going to wrestle with the lust of the flesh and with your selfishness or with your lust or with your greed or with your pride. You're still going to wrestle with that. God knows that. And look what he says. If these qualities, verses 8 and 9, if these qualities are yours and increasing, in other words, you just keep going back and building your life, letting the promises of God drive your life, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, and that he's so nearsighted that he's blind. 
and he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Ah, there's more. We'll talk about this next week, but I was thinking about a song that we sang today. Did you, did, you, did, you, did you love that song? I love singing it. There's a fountain who is a king, victorious warrior, Lord of everything, my rock, my shelter, my very own, my blessed redeemer. He reigns upon the throne. He started that song by writing, who can satisfy my soul like you? And who on earth could comfort me and love me like you do? And who could ever be more faithful and more true? I trust you. That's what he wrote. This was Dennis Jernigan. Dennis Jernigan wrote that song. Dennis Jernigan, when he was a boy growing up in Oklahoma, his earliest memories were being same-sex attracted. And then he had dark, dark memories of, of, of experiencing sinful behavior related to that. And one day, he was invited to a concert by the second chapter of Acts, and uh, he got saved and delivered He's a faithful minister of the gospel. He's a married man with, with nine children. He's a grandfather today. He wrote that beautiful song. God has delivered him and continued to deliver him from indulgence in sinful behavior. Behavior that the Bible says clearly is sin. And I know we tend to think of that as a really awful sin. You know, what's we, if we don't sin that way, we tend to think of that as a really especially egregious and awful sin. Oh, and sin is awful. Well, that's why I brought this book to show you respectable sins. If God can deliver a man from same-sex attraction, from acting on same-sex attraction, which must be very hard, and we should have great sympathy and love for people in all of their sinful struggles, then God can deliver you and God can deliver me from respectable sins. This is Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. He writes, the motivation for this book stems from the growing conviction that those of us who call ourselves conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the minor, major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle respectable sins. So if he can deliver us, he can deliver Dennis Jernigan from acting on that strong urge to violate what the scripture says, then he can help me with my ungodliness or you with your anxiety or your frustration or your, your discontent or your unthankfulness or your pride or your, your selfishness or your lack of self-control or your impatience, your irritability, your anger or all the euphemisms that we you replace it with or your judgmentalism. You can clean out the closet of your sin. You can tidy the attic of your sin. You can if you are promise-driven. You have a promise-driven land. Isn't that neat to know? We'll land on our feet. We'll finish faithful. We, we can follow the Lord. And how thankful that we are that we can do that. Pray. I'm going to pray for you. Before I do, just as I'm going to ask you, I am assuming that God has touched your life today because we taught the word and we sang the word and we watched baptisms and we gave our gifts to God. And I would like to think that you're ready to take a step of obedience to God. Somebody's here saying, okay, I'll get baptized. I'll ask my wife's forgiveness for the harsh words I said. I'll give when I haven't given before. I'll, I'll spend time with my little girl and build a relationship with her and te teach her about Jesus. I, what did the Lord tell you to do next? What promise did he tell you to claim today? Was there something like that? Was there something that you said, 
the Lord put on your life, then this is what you should stop doing, or this is what you should start doing, or stop believing, or start believing. What is it for you?